Welcome to the Beef Educator Series. Today we're starting a new <clears throat> series that um, where we'll be interviewing some producers from around the state and around the region that we've come in contact with through our extension activities and um, often we meet a lot of producers that are doing innovative and trying some new approaches in their beef production system and so we decided it would be a good idea to start sharing their experiences with other producers around the state and the region. So um, today's our first try at this. So again, we've got Dr. Uh, Ryan Larson and Dr. Matt Garcia. And our guest today is Christian Peterson from Crandall Creek Ranch uh, up near Cody, Wyoming. So welcome, Christian. Thank you. So <clears throat> Christian, to kind of get us started here today, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and then you know a background or a little bit of history about your family's ranch okay um i grew up you know uh involved in the ranching community um i uh i did i, I went to uh utah state in logan utah and graduated in geology um i have a you know a big i guess big part of my background is working in the oil field and I would uh, you know kind of during college and a little bit after college and um, after high school you know I would I would work in the oil fields and usually work for two weeks at a time and then I'd be off for two weeks um, so I'd work in the oil field two weeks and then I'd ranch for two weeks um, so I've uh, you know worked around several different ranches um, I worked for Ag Reserves, a uh, you know a large corporate ranch here in the United States, uh, um, at their Rex Ranch location in Nebraska, and also at a Utah location. Um, kind of did that before I eventually, you know, circled back here to the uh, family operation here in Cody, Wyoming. Good. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your family ranch? How long? Is it? I mean, just give us some background on the ranch itself. Yeah. So my grandparents um purchased this ranch um my mom purchased um you know a ranch next door to it and they they bought these ranches in the early 80s um you know they're kind of a traditional mountain you know two base of operation kind of cattle operation uh and at least in this area and I've, I've heard in other parts of the west this is kind of a traditional setup where you have a you know, a mountain or a summer base of operation where, you know, we have some irrigated meadows and then, you know, foresters grazing allotments um, where we graze cattle from, uh, you know, mid-June through end of October. Um, and then, you know, historically cattle would, pairs would, would go back to, a, you know, an hour or so away from here at a lower elevation um, uh, and spend the winter on farm ground or desert country okay good so as you come back to the ranch christian what are some things kind of to get us started off that that, that you've done differently and, and why could you kind of walk us through some of that well as i as i went and worked at other ranches and specifically at ag reserves i um i i learned um just a lot of interesting things and uh, that I wanted to apply at my home operation. Yes, the big one would be, you know, more of a progressive approach to animal handling, in particular, you know, Bud Williams principles 
and things of that matter. Um, those were really eye-opening to me, and um, so those are, uh, you know, things that I definitely wanted to bring home to my family operation. And then also, uh, you know, I got a taste for kind of holistic management, you know, a little bit of Alan Savory and, you know, just the principles of, uh, you know, giving giving grass, giving grasses or forage, you know, ground uh, appropriate recovery time. Um, you know, these were things that when I, when I learned them, I, I, I soon realized that, you know, at our home operation, we had just been really pretty, at least on our own deeded ground, we had been uh, overgrazing a lot of our pastures without really even realizing it just because that's what we always did. Um, so anyway, you know, I think that answers that question maybe. <laughs> Christian, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Okay. Um, since you've implemented these practices, have you, I guess, noticed an increase in performance and efficiency of those cattle? Yeah, I mean, so we we did a big transition, you know, from going from mother cows and calves to just yearlings. But I guess the biggest dip, so I don't have loads and loads of historical data as far as gains on, I mean, I, I may have five or eight years of historical data on uh, cattle, on yearling performance. But I guess one of the things that sticks out in my mind right now is the biggest difference I've seen is in our pasture health. Um, you know, basically for the last three or four years, we have, we've, we have not been overgrazing our fields and we've been giving them uh, the appropriate recovery time. And that's where I've seen a huge, huge improvement. I'm seeing, yeah, just greater plant diversity and uh, uh, new species pop up that I haven't seen before. Um, and just overall, you know, fields that really we're pretty sorry are, you know, starting to look pretty good. Hey, Christian, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to break with tradition? Um, we see this often in the West that people are, you know, and I've even started referring to it as married to kind of a cow-calf operation. What, you know, what, what was your logic or what was your thought process of moving to yearlings in an operation like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would hope that I would make the right decision again, but, uh, you know, there was another factor and, and that factor was, um, you know, there were some changes in the family that made it so uh, that the the mountain operation was then was kind of, how do I say it, the, the mountain operation in the, the, you know, the summer and the winter operation no longer, for various, for various reasons, were no longer run together. Um, and so I, I only had access to, to run and manage the summer operation. So, um that that was a big factor. So I, I no longer had anywhere to go with a bunch of mother cows in the winter. Um, but, you know, a, apart from that, um, you know, there were other factors such as I just, it just started to make more sense to me to, to run yearlings up here in this kind of this, this country, this mountain country uh, versus running pairs. Um, you know, the freight was one of them. Uh, 
I, I sure saved a lot of money on freight. I only had to bring year, you know, lightweight yearlings up once and uh, run them on the grass for the summer, summer and fall, and then I would, you know, sell them right off the ranch here. So I, I didn't have a big freight bill. But, I mean, that was that one was a big one. I didn't, uh, you know, when you run pairs, you at least on this ranch, uh, you're unable to trail them up to the summer country. So you have a huge trucking bill going up and a huge trucking bill going back. Sorry, I'm getting used to this mute thing. Um, so as you, as you made that decision, um, you know, I hear a lot of people concerned about running yearlings, especially on mountain country in terms of, you know, you're dumping um, naive animals into these, uh, you know, complex landscapes that face a lot of uh, threats. Uh, how, do, how do you feel like they've adapted to that? Is, or what's that looked like? Has it been as bad as um, you thought or some of the people may suggest, or has it, has it been easier? Um, you know, we, we started slow with, with less numbers and over the last few years, we've upped our, we've upped our numbers, which, you know, had its own group of challenges, but I've kind of found, you know, there's a, there's kind of a threshold that, you know, once you have a couple hundred yearlings on the forest, uh, you already have your work cut out for you. So you might as well have a few hundred more. Um, but. I mean, yeah, there there were definitely a lot of people that said that was a really silly idea and that that wouldn't work and um, it would just be too hard to manage. And um, I mean, it definitely hasn't been easy, um, but it we have been able to do it successfully. Um, one of the things that I'd like is, um, you know, someone may say, boy, it'd be nice to have the, the same pairs on the mountain every summer. They know where they're going. And that is true. And that is great. But uh, I have, I kind of start fresh, which is actually kind of nice every year with a fresh set of yearlings that don't know the mountain. Um, so they don't have horrible habits ingrained in them. Like they don't, you know, or maybe our pairs back in the day may just go find their honey hole and overgraze it all summer long. Um, I mean, you do your best to, with pairs to keep them from doing that. I mean, I, but I hear, I hear a lot of guys that work on other ranches, just that they have a full-time job, just, you know, moving the cattle out of the riparian areas that they, and they just absolutely love the riparian areas and they want to stay in them. And, you know, our yearlings are the same way to an extent, but they don't have a pre-programmed pattern in their mind of where they're going to go and what they're going to do. They're just, where we're able to kind of roll into some country and use the forage and then move off of it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's one thing that we've kind of found that was unexpected that, uh, yeah, the cattle, the yearlings do wander all over creation, but they're not, you know, they don't have poor habits, I guess you would say that maybe some pairs may have. Uh, hey, Christian. Um, how are you, are you selecting a, a certain type of yearling or are you just kind of bringing in some of these lightweight yearlings and just kind of uh, basically selecting on weight or weight or age? Well, well, we, we love to source calves from 
here in this region, you know, uh, we're we're not at a I don't know, we're maybe from 6,500 feet up to 8,000 or 8,500. So we're, we're at high elevations, not near as high as some producers. Um, so we do, you know, we can't, we can't buy cattle from low elevations and bring them up here and have them do well, um, for complications with brisket disease. Um, but to answer your question, we, yes, we, we do want the cattle to be a certain weight when we bring them up here, but a big factor is, we love to source cattle from here locally, um, you know, cattle that uh, are already from a decent, you know, a, a relatively high elevation and also cattle that have kind of had to, uh, you know, work for a living. You know, if, if they came off, if they were, uh, if, if they, if they've already been on an allotment last summer where, you know, maybe a rugged mountain allotment or even a high desert allotment where their mom, you know, drug them all over creation and um, made them work for a living, then uh, we, we tend to think those cattle do better up here um, than just maybe some, some calves that uh, just grown up on a farm field, maybe. Um, those those cattle right there, I, I don't have loads of data to back that up, but I speculate that those are my ones that just want to find a river bottom and hang out on it. Where I I prefer the cattle that are you know willing to go graze up on the side hills and and in the rougher country. Christian, what are some of the the things that that concern you the most about your ranch? What are some of your greatest concerns with your operation, or things that that keep you up at night that you know that that's, you spend a lot of time thinking about? Some of the main risks that you worry about. Um, well, there's a couple problems. Some of, some of my concerns, I have a couple pretty big ones, I guess. Um, wh one would be, you know, safety. I, uh, I, I always worry about the guys that work for me and gals. Um, I, I'm, you know, I, I love agriculture and I'm, I'm here to make a profit, but I, uh, I definitely don't want to get anybody hurt. Um, I know this industry is one of the most dangerous to work in. And uh, so, I mean, that's one, always one of my concerns. I, we live in, or we work in really rough country here. Um, you know, lots of rocks and bogs and steep country and cliffs and uh, thick timber and down timber and areas that have burned. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, that sa safety is a big one for us. And then another concern is, you know, we we graze we graze cattle on uh, on on national forest on U.S. Forest Service grazing allotments, and um, you know I I'm just a young man and I'm trying to preserve the ranch and move it forward so that my children will have an opportunity to do it. And you know, sometimes I worry that um, that you know maybe you know just with some direction, you know. I think there's a. I think there is a big pressure um, on on producers to maybe get off of federal grazing lands, um, and that you know that does keep me up at night. I do get nervous that you know a big part of my operation is uh, grazing on federal land, and so I I hope that you know I hope that I can be a good steward of the land and and show people that I can improve improve the 
improve the forage and improve the ground and um, you know with, with my cattle so that the people will be you know happy to see producers on federal land um, that's I mean that's a that's a big one that I worry about a lot of the time I cannot hear anyone. There you go, Christian. Sorry, I muted myself. Um, so one of the questions I have is oftentimes when you talk about changing, you know, permits, because there there were some changes that had to occur in your permit where you're leaving a cow-calf operation, moving to a yearling operation. Could you kind of walk us through that process? What were some of the things that were difficult? What were, you know, what, maybe anything you would have done differently? Um, you know, help those that may be considering a move to yearlings, what, what you learned through that process. I didn't have to make too many changes. I just, you know, I had to work with the, the folks at the Forest Service, which they were so good to work with and so willing to, uh, to try, um, to, to, to try running yearlings. Um, you know, and that's another thing that I've done is I, I try and run more, you know, I, I try and, you know, I'm a proponent for um, more cattle, short duration. So I, I try and move in with larger numbers on, on, on an area and take the forage that's there and then get off of it. Um, and, you know, rather than the traditional, oops, my pears kind of stayed in this pasture all summer long or something like that. Um, so that I mean, the Forest Service has been so good to work with, and so uh, you know they've they've they they share in the vision of of uh, you know that that type of management. That sounds good, Christian. So, in terms of managing them, I'm assuming you haven't put up lots of fence on the forest. So, how are you moving animals around, like? What, what is your, how does that operation look in terms of, you're talking about larger herds and moving them more frequently. Um, how does that look and, you know, what are the pluses and minuses of that approach? Well, we are, we're lucky in, uh, on, on a lot of our uh, permit ground here that we have a lot of natural barriers. Um, and, you know, we do have some drift fences that have been here for many, many years. Um, so, you know, we we just try and uh, you know we we just try and put the we we try and keep the cattle as bunched up as we can, which is hard to do, but we give it our best effort. Um, and you know, one principle we use, like in the past, you know, if we've got an area that has a great feed in it, but it happens to lead to another area where we don't want to get the cattle, or they're going to get out and away from us. We've just taken to basically saying, "Hey, I'm not going to be able to keep the cattle out of there." This may be—I mean, I'm not—I'm not saying we put cattle anywhere where they're not supposed to be, but you know, there's strategic areas that in the past we were like, "Oh shoot, we really don't want to let the cattle get into there um, because they're going to, you know, get away from us." But these past few years, we've just kind of taken the role of, well. Let's just put all of the cattle in there for uh, a day or two and let them 
harvest the, the forage out of there and then we'll bring them out. Um, and so that's kind of what kind of what we try and do. We try and keep the cattle moving on to uh, fresh feed all the time. I mean, there, there's always a challenge of them wanting to go back to, I mean, we do get some, some decent rain up here, so we have some pretty incredible regrowth. Um, so, you know, you, you've got to watch that. You know, at, at times you, you go in, you graze an area, you get off of it. Um, a month later or something, there's fantastic regrowth in there, and the cattle, I mean, if you let them, they'll, they'd love to go right back to it. Um, and we, you know, try and fight that all we can to just prevent that so that hopefully we're, you know, improving the, uh, the plant health. But yeah, to answer your question a little bit more, yeah, we try and use natural barriers. We're riding the cattle every day. Um, we, the cattle are pretty well addicted to our salt blocks. So we um, try and control the cattle a little bit with salt placement. Um, just your typical stuff that probably most producers do, I would guess. Uh, Christian, it sounds like you, you've done some really, really great things with the operation and you really improved a lot of things. I guess my question would be, you know, what, what do you want to do? Or if, if you had a wish list going forward, what would you like to accomplish with the operation uh, in the future? Mm. Or what changes would you, you might, you may want to make or kind of wishful changes that you can make? I guess I just look forward to perfecting what we're doing. Uh, it's not an exact science and we're um, always trying to optimize things, but it seems like there's always some new thing popping up every year that's unexpected. And I kind of look forward to just uh, having less of that <laughs> kind of uh, knowing where I want to take, I don't know. That's what I would say on that, I guess, is just trying to, uh, you know, get a handle on it and get better at it and, and, and hopefully have it feel, I don't want to say systematic, but I would like it to feel a little more systematic. I know, um, you know, obviously there's loads of judgment calls and adjustments to make constantly, but, uh, yeah, I just look forward to kind of optimizing what we do and getting better at it. So Christian, kind of one final comment, kind of to wrap up this portion. Um, so a lot of what you've done is basically increase your herd size, shorten the time that they're in a given area. And so that usually requires more labor. So, I mean, do you feel like that's been a significant increase in labor? Is it um, not as bad as you'd expect over kind of a cow-calf operation? But then in the long run, do you think it, that it's worth it? I mean, obviously, that you've answered your own question because you're still doing it, but just some thoughts yeah. on that. Well, it definitely is a expensive, you know, labor is our biggest cost here. Um, and it's... Um, you know, as every producer would know, it's really hard to find good help. So it's, um, it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, but I do feel like it is worth it. I feel like, uh, I feel like, you know, I've been using these same principles on my irrigated deeded meadow, you know, uh, deeded meadows, if you will, where I graze, uh, additional yearlings. And I'm seeing these principles just improve the forage quality and the forage diversity and, and uh, it's just 
I believe the same principles will um, really help the, the Forest Service grazing land. Um, so I, I do feel like it's worth it, and I do feel like I'll see continue to see the same results um, that I do on my meadows out on the forest. Um, it's just it's not as controlled of an environment. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely do think it's worth it. Christian, when you said you had a geology degree, it kind of kind of threw me off. Can you can it kind of explain to me uh, what some of these different, you know, non-traditional uh, degree working in the oil field, some of your career experiences? What what has that done for you, and how you become a manager of your own place? Um. Yeah, I I don't know. I just. Uh... My my parents always encouraged me to get an education, and uh, they just always encouraged me to get an education in you know something that interested me. And um, and you know my father always told me that it was important to learn how to learn because you'll be learning your whole life. And so um, I feel like a, a degree in I mean. Really, any education is great for you, but I, I feel like I benefited tremendously from studying geology. I mean, it, it is a it's a science, um, and I, I felt like it taught me critical thinking, and I've uh, it served me well working in the oil fields, and it's serving me well now. Um, I mean, with that said, sure wish I could do go back to college a little bit and take a few more range classes, um, but. Uh, yeah. So Christian, since I've, you know, been up to your place, it, you face some, some challenges that not everybody faces. Um, you know, for example, grizzly bears and wolves are, are one of the issues that I know we've discussed before. So a lot of the folks that will be listening to this are here in Utah, where we don't have those problems currently. And, you know, we can speculate whether those two species will continue to increase their distribution across the West. But can you talk a little bit about the learning curve on how to manage with and around those, those two kind of issues? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, and I guess they're just like any other challenge. You just, uh, try and do your best to, uh, think of ways to, to, uh, to work around the challenge. And, um, I mean, that's, that's what we've done here. They, they have a presence, um, here, um, and there's, probably no getting around it um i mean it is prob i don't know it could go both ways um there are there are some some factors where the uh where the yearlings hold up better than the cow calf pairs on to the predators and then there's other aspects where i i think they're not as good um they don't i mean they don't have a mother with them to to uh you know 
teach him that the the big furry bear is, is not their friend. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to say on that one. I guess. So, Christian, do you think you know? I don't know if you have any actual information, and maybe you do. But do you do you think that having the animals bunched into herds and where you're moving them, and you have somebody with them often, that that helps reduce that? that predation risk or do you think it it doesn't matter oh i think it i think it for sure does and it's something that we about have to do um yeah i i, I believe having them in larger groups and trying to keep them keep them more bunched up um really help um that's just my opinion it's not backed by any data but also by having uh you know a herdsman with them more is, is definitely better and um, I mean bottom you know an another aspect is is you know if the bears and the wolves uh, if they kill a, if they kill a yearling up here and, and we're able to find it in time um, and get it certified by Wyoming Game and Fish then we're uh, compensated for that which is fantastic Wyoming Game and Fish is so good to work with on that they're so able and willing to, you know, mobilize and come up into these remote areas and to look at uh, bear or bear wolf kills um, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, it, we, it's basically a necessity. We, we have to have the, uh, you know, we have to have the, the human presence with the, with the cattle to, you know, deter the, the predators. But also if the predators, you know, are, do kill something, then we've got to find that kill very, very quickly because, um, I mean, I've seen 11 different bears come in in 40 minutes on one carcass, uh, 11 different grizzly bears. So it does not take them long to clean up an 800, you know, anywhere from a 50 to 850 pound yearling. I mean, it, they just clean it up and it's gone. So you've got to, you've got to get on it pretty quick. That, that's really interesting, Christian. You know, maybe this is a question for Dr. Larson, but I wonder what that economic loss, I mean, it's obviously a loss for you, but with a cow-calf pair operation, losing a cow would appear to be much more significant in terms of the total economics at the ranch level. Is that a fair statement? We have yeah, because yeah. you're trying to pay for those calves and it has a much bigger impact for that cow-calf operation be my opinion. Christian, do you agree? Oh, I, I agree. And I've, you know, I've, when we've seen pairs up, you know, when we've had pairs up here in the past, I mean, there's so many other factors If they kill a calf or they kill a cow or they just get the herd all paranoid and then they don't breed up as well as you'd like, or, I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of effects. So Christian, do you think it's, help insulate you from some of that risk because you're yet running yearlings versus a traditional cow-calf operation with the bear and wolf issue that you face? Um, say, say that again. I, I guess what I'm wondering is if, if by running a, cow, uh, uh, a yearling operation in a mountain pasture, which traditionally has been the other way around, running a cow-calf operation, in your opinion, has that insulated you? I mean, there's still risks. I'm not 
but but are there fewer risks because you're running a cat, you know, a, a stalker versus a cow calf operation? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely a trade off. Uh, I mean, it's hard to track this data, but it's not hard to track the data. I, I have the data, and there are some correlations, but um, I mean, average daily gains on the yearlings. The, you know, it's my opinion that the predators can influence that, and those are cost. You know, if your gains go down, that's uh, you know over a season of grazing, that's um, quite a. Those are those are big hits. Um, but, and I'm not as familiar with all of the. You know, I haven't I haven't done a lot of the. I guess, I guess I haven't done a lot of the the numbers on cow calf pair produ uh, production um, in my adult life. Um, you know, I've been involved with that a lot, but never, not, not as a manager, I guess, if you will, or an owner operator. Um, but I, it appears that there's a, you know, pregnancy rate and, um, I mean, there looks like there's a whole, a whole host of factors that can be affected by the predators with the cow calf pairs. Um, that's for sure. I mean, there's the two the two factors they can affect on the yearlings is pretty basic. It's the average daily gains and the death loss, um, which those are pretty big factors too. Um, but it sounds like some of the other factors in with the cow calf pairs they can kind of snowball into you know pretty costly or bigger, um, you know some some other factors as well. Well, thanks for your time today, Christian. We've enjoyed visiting with you. It's uh, it's always interesting to talk to somebody that's trying something a little new and thinking outside of the box a little bit. So, again, we appreciate your time with us and uh, wish you the best. Okay. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting with you guys. All right. Thanks, Christian. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Christian.